Nimrod is a, another enigmatic character. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The Jewish commentators are really interesting in this because they see him as kind of a prototypical anti-God who is trying to establish his own kingdom apart from the kingdom of God. And he went into the land of Shinar, which is Iraq of today, and it says that he built the cities of Babel and Nineveh. That's scripture there. The, the Jews have a whole other view that he was actually trying to establish a kingdom opposed to God and said, we will um, kind of retribution against God because we just came through the flood and we're the generations after the flood. So we're going to build a tower that is so high to the heavens. Let's see him try to drown us again. Let's see him try to drown us again. Let's see him try to drown us again. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Welcome to all of our listeners today. I am excited to embark on a journey of exploration, delving into a truly captivating facet of biblical interpretation that enhances our understanding of the scriptures we hold dear. The subject at hand is the intricate and enlightening concept of typology, a framework where the Old Testament unfolds as a vibrant mosaic inlaid with symbols, foreshadowing, ultimately finding their fulfillment and revelation in the profound narratives of the New Testament. It's a journey that takes us through the layers of time, connecting the dots between the sacred texts, revealing a divine design that adds immeasurable depth to our spiritual understanding. As we step onto the path of exploration, let's envision the Bible as a sacred puzzle, intricately crafted by the divine hand. Picture each piece, whether found in Genesis or Isaiah, as a significant element contributing to a grand, awe-inspiring tapestry that unfolds not only within the Gospels, but extends far beyond. Typology at its core becomes the artistic process of discerning these intricate connections, allowing us to grasp the profound orchestration where the Old Testament acts as the stage setter for the grand narrative of salvation revealed in the New Testament. It's an exquisite dance between the sacred verses, revealing a symphony of design that transcends time and beckons us to explore the profound depths of our faith. From the prophetic figures that emerge like guiding beacons to the intricate montage of sacrificial rituals, typology serves as the seamless thread weaving through the fabric of both testaments. It is the divine design that transcends the confines of time and history 
connecting the dots with a purpose that goes beyond our mortal understanding. As we delve into the sacred scriptures, we'll uncover hidden treasures that hold profound insights, inviting us to unravel the mysteries and explore the profound connections between the Old and New Testaments. Adam, the first man, is often seen as a type or foreshadowing of Christ. And so, just as Adam's disobedience led to sin and death, Christ's obedience brings redemption and life. The story of Noah's Ark, saving humanity and animals from the flood, is considered a type of salvation. In the New Testament, baptism is compared to being saved through water, and the church as the new Ark of Noah. The manna provided to the Israelites in the wilderness is seen as a type of Christ, who referred to himself as the bread of life. And so, just as manna sustained physical life, Christ sustains our spiritual life. As we traverse the corridors of biblical history, typology emerges as the invisible thread that binds together the Old and New Testaments, creating a harmonious symphony of purpose and design, a grand orchestra. The characters, events, and symbols in the Old Testament act as foreshadowings, casting shadows that find their clarity and brilliance in the New Testament narratives. Every prophecy, from the cryptic utterances of the prophets to the seemingly ordinary lives of the patriarchs, resonates a divine resonance that extends beyond its immediate context. Typology, therefore, becomes the key that unlocks the deeper meanings, revealing the intricate layers of God's providence and His intricate plan for salvation. So, listeners... On this enlightening expedition, join me in navigating the hollowed passage of scriptures. Let us collectively uncover the hidden treasures that lie beneath the surface. As we marvel at the profound insights waiting to be discovered, together we shall decipher the connection, decipher the mysteries, and behold the majestic unfolding of God's grand narrative. A narrative that beckons us to reflect, learn, be transformed. Thank you for being companions on this illuminating pilgrimage as we walk towards a greater comprehension of the divine tapestry that binds our shared spiritual heritage. For it is said, that which was hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. In times of turbulence, many find solace in the opening words of the Bible, where Genesis begins with the profound phrase, in the beginning. These timeless words offer a solid ground for reflection and contemplation. The notion of a starting point at Genesis provides a foundation to navigate the complexities of our current world. It is a reminder that even amidst uncertainty, we can find strength and perspective by returning to the fundamental beginnings that shape our understanding of existence. Therefore, why not bring on someone who has written a study guide and commentary for the everyday lay faithful? My guest has crossed the Tiber, found faith with the fathers, and has visited the land where it all began. He is the Catholic convert, the unapologetic apologist, and seasoned scholar. Steve Ray, thank you for coming on the show. Well, 
Well, thank you, Brendan. That's a pleasure to be with you. That's quite the introduction. Thank you. Um, I have been to the Holy Land, to Israel itself, over 200 times. And I have been to Iraq, where the whole book of Genesis mm-hmm. begins, that whole life of uh, even the Garden of Eden and the story of Abraham. And uh, all of the, uh, pretty much any place that Genesis mentions I've been to, not not to uh, Baghdad or Babylon itself, but other parts of Iraq. So it was fun writing this book because I've been there and it was it's easier to write something that you know and you've felt and tasted and touched. We're talking about uh, Steve Ray's book, Genesis. It's a Bible study guide and commentary put out by Ignatius. It came out in fall of 2023. And here in the jacket, he's got a really awesome quote. It says, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary uncovers the excitement and drama of the ancient narrative, so often ignored or misunderstood. In Ray's reading, the book of Genesis is a shout of joy. We can know where we came from. We can know who we are. We can know our destiny. We are not alone in the universe. And so what was the main reason you wanted to write a study guide on Genesis, Steve? Well, mainly because, uh, first of all, I have done a documentary movie on Abraham. So that pretty much covered the book of Genesis. We start with creation and I did the whole 90 minute DVD called Abraham, Father of Faith and Works. But we also covered from creation and the flood up to him quickly. And then we did his Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But my parents taught me to love the Bible ever since I was a little kid. And in the uh, introduction there, I give them credit. And I loved uh, scripture and I loved the book of Genesis. And when I became Catholic, even though I'd studied the Bible a lot and loved the Bible as an evangelical Protestant, I really fell in love with scripture when I became a Catholic because it all made more sense. It all fit together. And when I became Catholic, I was asked to write some Bible studies for a Bible study organization called Catholic Scripture Study International. And they asked me to write the commentaries for the weekly studies. And I I said, yes. So I did Genesis, uh, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Yeah. Acts for 2 Corinthians, the other. So, but I I loved the Genesis book. And I realized that there weren't any commentaries out there Mm -hmm. for Catholics. If, If a Catholic goes to a Catholic bookstore, they're not going to find a an easy to read introduction and told in a fun way and yet brings out all of the deeper meanings and yeah. issues from a catholic perspective it's just not out there so i said let's take the study that i did for catholic scripture study international and let's develop mm-hmm. that into a book and ignatius said let's do it so that's how it got started. It took a couple of years to do that because of I, I'm traveling so much going overseas, leading pilgrimages and stuff. But we finally got it done. And, and just so you'll know, I'm now working on actually oh, nice. That'll be the next one. But but uh, this, this book, I, I really think it's unique. If you pick up some series, like you can buy commentary series, scholarly things and so on. You can find they have Genesis. But if you just go to look for a commentary, a recent commentary on Genesis. You'll find tons of them by Protestants, but you won't find them by Catholics. So this kind of fits a, a niche. That's that absolutely true. Told. Yeah, I have Dr. Bergsma's and Dr. Petrie's introduction to the Old Testament, along with a Paulist commentary. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading through yours, something that stood out to me, and I found it really amazing, was the fact that you cover 
the Sons of God controversy in such a beautiful and detailed way. And I wanted to get your ideas and opinions on this, not merely from reading the words, but really your desire to not just share one particular view, an Augustinian view or a Aquinas view, but really get to the heart of other people that are saying different things about this. I don't have a horse in the race. In other words, I don't have any agendas with this other than the fact that Genesis is the word of God and it's inspired and fallible and inerrant. And it's teaching us what we need to know about who we are, why we're here, where we're going, and uh, all of the big questions that philosophy asks, this book gives us the answer to. But with this topic here, it, it is an interesting one. And I, I always try to present both sides of something, to be fair. And especially this one, there are two distinct opinions. Um, and, and another thing, is, if you noticed as you look through the book, is I love to use Jewish commentators, even from before the time of Christ, all the way up to modern Jewish commentators, because it was their book long yeah, before absolutely. it was ours. <laughs> and, uh, and it's very fascinating. And I don't know of any other commentary that does what I do using Jewish sources as well to bring out what they thought the passage meant, which ties in then right with the doctors yeah. of the church and the early church, and then with modern scholarship and so on. So we're, we're talking about in Genesis chapter six, it's really only four verses and they're very enigmatic verses. They are discussed a lot. There's been a lot of ink spilled on these four verses and two major opinions. So first of all, it says that the, the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they fathered children and they were the Nephilim, which the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, just renders that as giants. And even we know from um, in the book of Numbers, when the, the 12 spies went into the land, they came back and said, there were giants, the Nephilim there. And we were like yeah. grasshoppers in their eyes. So there's, there's this unusual and um, bewildering in a way talk of giants and they are a result of the sons of God and the daughters of men joining together and they became the giants of old. So the, the question is who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? It doesn't define who they are. I wish it had. That would make things much simpler but they don't. The first view uh, is the one I do not hold to um, although I understand why people do is they are um, the sons of God were men from the line of Seth. That was one of uh, Adam's kids. Who crossed over to take the daughters of men from the line of Cain. So the line of Seth, are uh, the sons of men are from the line of Seth, a human line that were tended to be more righteous and follow, were in the line of the godly ones who would, from which would come the Messiah. And the daughters of men, it doesn't tell us who, but it says that this theory is that they were the line of Cain, the sinners, come from a murderer. But the question then is, but how would this union create giants? Why would human sons of Seth and daughters of Cain create lions? The second view, which I tend to hold to myself, is the sons of God were fallen angelic beings who lusted after the daughters of men and they fathered giants by them. Uh, that explains the giants and how that would happen, but 
the question there is how would incorporeal and angels without bodies have sexual right. relations with women and father giants. So these are two in each view, no matter which one you take, has yeah. its problems. And the one with the angels is the oldest tradition. Many of the Jewish commentators held to that. The earliest church fathers did, and many uh, modern scholars do. But there's also big names like Augustine and um, John Chrysostom, doctors of the church. I think that Scott Hahn and others today tend to, and, and also the book you mentioned, A Catholic Introduction to the Bible by Bergsman Petrie, tend to, they, they hold the, the line of right. Seth also. I think the reason that I really go with the angels is because it explains giants, whereas the daughters of Cain and sons of Seth does not explain how would you get giants out of that union. But mainly every time that the scripture refers to sons of God in the plural, it's always referring to angelic or supernatural right. being. Yeah. So my conclusion is that it was an angelic beings that came down and how they did it. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, taking on the forms of men. We know that there was the angel of the Lord that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. That was a theophany. That right. was God himself. We know that angels can take on a visible form. So how, how the technology of it actually happened of angels having relations with uh, women, I don't know. But that seems to be <laughs> that enigmatic four verses. I think that best explains it. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Your support boosts the algorithm, helping us reach more ears and create even better content. Thanks for being part of our community. Right. Yeah, we have this um, idea from Jude. Some commenters and scholars have argued that Jude makes this sense that the angels who sinned and the terminology used is usually a, a sexual sin and a shedding of their ocaterion, their heavenly bodies, is sometimes the... But we don't really understand how that happened. But we do know the fallout is a flood, and then... After the flood goes away, it doesn't take very long for man to return to these horrible ways. And we have the rise of Nimrod and the erecting of the temple to God. Yeah, the Nimrod is a, another enigmatic character. The scriptures don't say much about him, but um, the Jewish commentators have a lot to say about him. What we do here is it says in scripture... It was through Noah's son, Ham, and then Cush. He was the father of Nimrod. When the book of Genesis 10 says he was the first one on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That was like a maxim or a statement that passed on through tradition that this was a... Con so you'd always say if somebody is mighty, oh yes, he's like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> And um, so you, you have here also um, numerous um, ideas of who he was. And the, the, um, the Jewish commentators are really interesting in this because they see him as kind of a prototypical anti-God who is trying to establish his own kingdom apart from the kingdom of God. And he went into the land of Shinar, which is Iraq of today. And it says that he built the cities of 
Babel and Nineveh. That's scripture there, chapter 10, verse 9, that he built the cities of Babel and Nineveh. And the Hebrew text says he's a mighty man. But the, the Jews have a whole other view that he was actually um, trying to establish a kingdom opposed to God and said, we will um, kind of retribution against God because we just came through the flood and we're the generations after the flood. So we're going to build a tower that is so high to the heavens. Let's see him try to drown us again. <laughs> we'll go up our tower and we'll be safe up in that tower. He's not going to do that to us again. And God had told them, you know, that the Jews considered Noah the second Adam because he's starting over humanity again. And he gets the same command to subdue the earth and go out and multiply and, and, and multiply and subdue the earth. He gets the same command that Adam had been given. So Noah had that. So these people were supposed to go out, not be all together in one place, but they would go out to subdue the earth. God had made them in charge of the earth, so to speak. And so they were going to supposed to go out and subdue it. Well, they didn't. They all stayed together and they defied God and said, we're going to build our own kingdom contrary to God. And we're going to build this. It's called a ziggurat, by the way. A ziggurat is a pyramid that was built in that area of, of the world. And I've been up the ziggurat in near Nazaria. It's in the city, ancient city of Ur. You are where Abraham came from. And that ziggurat is still there today. When I made the movies, I go, I went up to the top of that and said, here's where Abraham was. And him and his family, they worshipped other gods here. So they built these pyramids. Why? Because Iraq is flat. It is so flat you could see for miles. And there's always this mentality of people that they want to be close to God, that they, they need to go up. So not only is it an attitude of we're going to build a tower to, to protect ourselves from any of God's retributions in the future. We'll just go up into our own little tower, big mountain that we're building, the ziggurat it's called. But it also, it was an attempt to, um, to be like God, to be high, to go up. And in my book, I make the fun, uh, fun a little bit of the fact that when they were building at the Tower of Babel, which they said Nimrod was in charge of that, that they said, let us build a tower up to the heavens. And then it says, and God came down from the heavens to see them. <laughs> it's kind of this lovely play on words. That God mocks them, you know, you're building this up to heaven, but I still have to come down to see you. <laughs> so, but this was the, kind of the, the meaning of this tower is they're going to be like God. It's almost the Garden of Eden all over again. We're going to be like God ourselves. We're going to build our own protection. We're going to build our own kingdom. And the Jews have this whole uh, legend or their view of Nimrod that shows him as being that kind of a guy refusing to submit to God and we're going to build our own kingdom. Amazing stuff that you even think you can draw the <laughs> gods down to, to earth or yeah. bring back or do whatever kind of ceremony ritualization you want to do to dictate yep. to God what you will do. The arrogance of such men. And so what the way God, I thought it was very clever, the way it presents God as disrupting their plans is just confuse their language, which is what Babel or Babylon means is the confusion. It's babbling. <laughs> it's the babble. And so the way I put it in my book, it see if I can find it real quick. 
It says, um, imagine the scene for a moment. They're all, the day breaks, the whistle blows, and the men wait for their work assignments on the big ziggurat. The construction supervisor shouts out the orders, but only a few men understand them. The others hear only gibberish and look at each other puzzled. What do you say? They are more dumbfounded when the fellow workers answer with what sounds like babbling. The work screeches to a halt. Workers who understand each other gather together in small groups and look quizzically at each other. Eventually, small groups of those who understand each other's language leave and start their own communities, and the huge ziggurat project is abandoned. So I try to write it in a in a familiar way to help, you know, scholars. I'm not a scholar. I'm, I'm not in any way a theologian, a philosopher, or a scholar. I'm just an average guy who loves the Bible and loves to study it. So I, I try to write it in, in a way like that, that average Joe Catholics can understand and get a feel for what happened. Absolutely. That's the point. That's the way Paul teaches. He uses this midrashic style so we understand the mode of the day. Right. And then we have the, the babble event. Everybody's babbling, but we have a, a counter to that we find in the New Testament. Would you like to talk about how the Holy Spirit comes down and repairs this? And just to set this up a little bit, the book of Genesis, like we talked about before we were on live and just chatting a bit, is the book of Genesis could be called the book of typology. And for those who may not know what typology is, I know, Brandon, that you love typology. That's kind of one of the central cores of what you do. When there's something in the Old Testament, a person, place, a thing, or an event, which prefigures something that's going to happen in the future. In other words, it's a story that says, pay attention to the story because you're going to see it again, but it's going to be much bigger, much more profound. When you get into the New Testament and you look back at these stories in the Old you can all of a sudden see now what they mean. I, I view Jesus as in the middle and it's like a big orchestra playing. And he's got the baton and he's in the middle. And over on the left-hand side is the Old Testament and on the right-hand side is the New Testament. He waves his baton over to the left side. The Old Testament comes up with a theme. It shows Noah going into the ark and passing through the waters and a white dove flying over top. And then he throws the baton over to the New Testament and all the woodwinds and the flutes and the oboes start to dance around that theme. And all of a sudden you see this is water baptism. The ark represents the church and it's taking us through the waters of the, of the flood and above is the Holy Spirit. And then we have water and spirit, which the New Testament says we're now born again by water and spirit. And the woodwinds and they just go crazy with this theme. And he throws it back to the other side and he shows the Tower of Babel. And the languages are being confused and everybody can't hear and understand each other. And God's plan is being thwarted by them. So he confuses their language and they go out. And then he, Jesus, he throws the baton over to the New Testament. And all of a sudden the woodwinds and French horns all take off again. And we see Pentecost. Why Pentecost? Because that is the fulfillment. At Babel, they began to babble. They were babbling and gibberish. They couldn't understand each other, and they broke off into separate countries and groups and covered the plant and the planet Earth. Now Pentecost comes, and it, you look at the list of. I'm going to try and bring it up real quick while we're here. The list of all of the places where people were from. And they could all hear the language in their own language. So I'm going to go here to Acts 2. And 
what happens is you see a reversal of Babel because people come from all over. It says, look at here. It says, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own language, in his native language? In other words, we have all of our different languages. We know that uh, Paul probably spoke four languages. He spoke Greek. He spoke Latin. He spoke um, uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. He also spoke what I would call Tarsian because he's from Tarsus. And each one of those provinces had their own dialects and languages. So how can we hear these people saying, we're coming from all over? He said, we're here for Pentecost. We're Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And we hear him telling the good news of God in our own language. So this is a reversal of Babel. So what God is doing is saying, now I'm, I'm going to bring you all back together again into one. And it's going to be a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And you're going to have the same language. Now, obviously, this was symbolic here to show, to get the whole thing started and to show that it was a reversal of Babel and what God was going to do. But still today, the church has spoken Latin through the whole time. So there's that common language in the, in the language of the church. But also we have the creed which no matter what language you say it in, we're still speaking the same language, so to speak, because of the concepts and the ideas. And when we go take our groups to Pater Noster Church, which means the Our Father, you see the Our Father in hundred and almost 180 languages. So you see Pentecost is like a fulfillment of the type that we see. It's a negative type of Babel, but we see the reversal of that with Pentecost, which I find just fascinating. Well, we're talking about types, and you had mentioned Jesus standing there in the middle being the orchestra. Well, that makes me think of another type, another son and father story, and it brings us right back after the fall of Babel. All of these things happen, and the story picks up with this man and his wife leaving their hometown by the will of God, who tests him in various ways and forms and promises him an offspring. And he has Ishmael through his wife's maidservant. And it's just this story after story of loss and love. But something beautiful happens in the story of Abraham that I think is incredibly important. Abraham is such a unique character. Has been called by God at 75 years old with no children although he has 318 men who work for him and helping him with his flocks and his herds. He's a very wealthy man, and God tells him, pick up and leave Ur, which is in Iraq of today. We were talking about the ziggurat there, and go to a place I'll call, I will take you. So I'm laying the foundation a little bit, if you don't mind, to, before we get to that. No, please. And he tells him, I want you to go, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a son, and this is just go. And Abraham, if it were me, I'd have said, well, that's all wonderful, God. I love the idea of all this. Um, can you please show me a map and give me a GPS so I know where I'm going? I would also like to have the deed to the land in advance. I don't like to take things by chance. I'm a businessman. I'd like to know about my pension, my health insurance. Now, see, that's what I would have asked. That's what anybody would have asked. But Abraham, he just said, okay. Here I am, Lord. By the way, over 24 times, I think it is, 14, 24 times, 
I forget the exact number, but a lot. Anytime that God comes and speaks to someone and calls them, Abraham, for example, Jacob, others, here I am, Lord. That's the, by the way, if anybody, the Lord comes to you at night and speaks to you, that's the response. Here I am, Lord. You're being very biblical that way. But I I love this poem and I put it in the book and I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's called The Call of Abraham. When God calls him and tells him to go, he says, um, I have worshiped my own God and to you I have addressed no prayers. And suddenly you come in like a fire in the desert and you say, go. I'm 75 years old. Am I supposed to scuttle my life? Um, you have spoken. I, you asked me to leave the graves of my ancestors, to pull up my tent. You give these commands. Go to wherever I tell you. I'm 75 years old, Lord. You come very late. You come very late. But my camels will leave in the morning. That just gives me goosebumps every time I read that poem and think of Abraham packing up and the next day his camels left. And it was a long journey, probably 1,500 miles total. And with flocks and herds, you can only travel six miles a day. So divide up 1,600 miles by six miles a day. And you can see the arduousness and the commitment to taking a journey like this. So this is the kind of guy... God was looking for to start over again. He wants to start a covenant and build a people. And he looked for this man and this man said, here I am, Lord. And he went. Now, through the whole story of Abraham, you see him obeying and following God. God's testing him to, in a sense, test his mettle to to prepare him actually to bring this people about. And he finally gives him his son, Isaac. And it's when Sarah's 89 years old and Abraham is 99 years old. And it's a miracle baby. But when that boy is probably around 15 years old, in Genesis 22, we read one of the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching stories of God giving the final test to Abraham. And in my book, that was my favorite chapter. And it It's probably the longest chapter and maybe the most interesting chapter because there's so much involved. It begins with, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And how does Abraham respond? Here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer them there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, you are 115 years old, roughly, and you have a 15-year-old son who is the joy of your life. You're inseparable. All of the promises of God, all of the covenants of God are focused on that boy. He's going to be the fulfillment. He's the link in the chain to bring it all to fruition. And now I'm supposed to go kill my son and burn him on an altar. So first of all, in the book, I deal with the issue of human sacrifice. And I know we don't have time to go into that today, but do you want me just to mention it a little bit? Let's talk about the Akedah, the binding, and what's going on here. Yep. The Akedah, which you mismentioned, it's very astute of you. Because we as Catholics and Christians usually call it the offering of Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. But he didn't offer him. He didn't sacrifice him. What he did is he bound him, and he prepared him for a sacrifice. So the Jews call it the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, which is the way I refer to it. Now, 
And it's not an easy matter for an older man to tie up a young man who's strong. Isaac had enough strength to carry the wood of the sacrifice on his back up to Mount Moriah. So he's not a little skinny kid. He's a strapping young, and the word that's used in Hebrew, lad, refers to like a teenager, a young man. Now, Abraham, how do you get that boy up on the altar? When I did the movie on Abraham, when we were there, I did this actually in Palestinian West Bank. But we built an altar out of rocks. And I put the wood for the fire because you have to have wood. And then you put the sacrifice on top. And I got a ram. I actually went to a, a, a shepherd's and I borrowed a ram for the afternoon. Just a regular woolly lamb with horns. And I said, okay, to my crew, we're going to tie this guy up and we're going to hoist him up onto this altar. And we'll get this on video. See, Well, it took us at least four guys to tie that ram up. And then it took us five guys. He was heavy. To lift him up shoulder length and put him on top of the wood I put on top of that. So one of the things you see instantly here is that Isaac and the Jews realized this too, that Isaac had to be a willing sacrifice because he could have just pushed the old man over and said, I'm like, oh, what do you mean you're going to burn me on that altar? I'm not going to let you burn me on that altar. Are you crazy? Push the old man down the mountain. But he must have been a willing victim in order to be bound and put on that altar. He had to climb up there himself, I'm quite sure. There's no other way Abraham could have lifted that boy up there. So now, when we see this passage, it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, I ask people, does that remind you of a verse in the New Testament? And people think for a minute and go say, oh, John 3.16, for God so loved his only begotten son, that he gave him as a sacrifice. Even the wording here now, you see that there's a parallel possibly going on. So you dive into it a little more. And what you find out is where is Moriah? Well, it's only used one other time in scripture, and that's in the book of Chronicles where it says Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. Where did Solomon build his temple? On the top of Jerusalem. So Moriah is the top of the mountain of Jerusalem. So he's taking him there. He doesn't know why. He's from Beersheba. It's 50 miles. So it's going to be three days because if you the average walking speed of when you don't have animals and young children is 20 miles a day. So when Jesus and his disciples walked around, they basically covered 20 miles in a day. So you leave Beersheba 50 miles away. It's a three day journey to get to Mount Moriah. I would have said to God, even if I agree to do this, why do I have to go all the way to Moriah? And I have to think about it all the way there. I'm going to have nightmares at night thinking about this. What am I going to talk to Isaac about along the way? I can't. Can I tell him? I'm not going to tell him. Why don't I just do it here and get it over with? But he had to go to Mount Moriah because there's a reason it had to be at Mount Moriah. Because 2,000 years later, another father with his only begotten son whom he loved was going to take him up to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. So then you begin to see, aha, there's something going on here. This story of Abraham and Isaac is a picture. It's typology. It's pointing to something else. Why is he doing this? Partly, I think, is because God is saying, I want you human beings to have a human example of what I'm going to have to do with my son. I want you to have this story so you can relate to Abraham offering his son. 
so that you can get an idea of what it was is going to cost me to offer my son. I think God might have also been saying, I, w- I know what I'm going to do in giving my son for mankind. Is there a man out there who's willing to do for me what I'm willing to do for him? And also, just about the, there was human sacrifice where Abraham came from. In his culture, there was human sacrifice. And I won't go into that. I do in my book and a, and a lot more even in the movie that I made. I think Abraham is saying, you, you, would have, you lived in a culture of human sacrifice. You would have been involved in that for your God, whose name was Nana, the God of the moon. Will you do for me what you would have done for him? Have you really switched allegiances and abandoned him? And are you really making me your God? And are you willing to do for me what you would have done for Nana? Now, let's, let's look at this. It says that they arrived at the scene. And I, I think Abraham knew he was not going to have to offer his son. I think he knew that something was going to happen. He didn't really have to offer him because... The young men who came with them that took care of the donkey who journeyed with them, he said, the lad and I, in other words, Isaac, the lad and I will go up and worship and we will come back to you. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood and the fire for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, he didn't say, well, we'll figure that out or wait till you see You're going to be surprised. No, he said, the Lord will provide a lamb, my son. And the book of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter says that he believed in God so much that he was willing to do this because even if he did have to follow through, God would raise him from the dead. So now he's going up and it says that Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice on his back. 2000 years later, when God, the father brought his son, what did Jesus carry on his back? To the sacrifice, the wood of the cross. Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice. Jesus, the new Isaac, carries the wood of the cross. When Abraham found it was ready to kill his son, the angel stopped them, and there was a ram with his head stuck in a thorn bush. What was Jesus' head stuck in when he went to the cross? A thorn bush, a crown of thorns. Jesus was a willing victim. He could have resisted. He could have stopped the whole thing, but he didn't. He willingly went to the sacrifice. Isaac, like Jesus, was a willing sacrifice. So you see the parallels. Now it says in the book of Hebrew that in a type, (laughs) exactly what we're talking about, typology, in a symbol or in a type, Isaac was raised from the dead because he didn't have to die and he was taken back home from his father. So we see the whole story of Abraham Isaac. In, in the sacrifice is God the Father giving us a picture of him offering his son at the very same place at Mount Moriah when you see all of the same story happening. Now, I'll take it a little bit further since you like typology and so do I. And since this is also exciting, we can't stop halfway through the story of Isaac and Abraham. So now Abraham takes his son home. And when he's home, he says, oh, my son needs a bride. Now, he's not going to get a bride from among the pagan Canaanites around him. He's going to go back to his homeland, back to where his rest of his family stayed in Haran. He's going to send his unnamed servant. We don't know his name at this point. It just says he was a servant. He took 10 camels full of gifts, and he sent him up to his own people. The bride, Rebecca, agreed to come back at the prompting of the unnamed servant. He gives her all these 10 camel loads of gifts, gold, 
fabrics and clothing, very extravagant. She comes back. She sees Isaac in the field. He's meditating. He sees her. They fall in love. It says he loved her. He wed her. He took her into his tent. It's a very romantic story, by the way. Now, let's go back, let's go back and look at it from the standpoint of typology. Abraham, his son is raised from the dead, so to speak, as Hebrew says it in a type. So Abraham, God the father, his son is also raised from the dead, and he takes him back home on the, day, on the ascension. Forty days later, Jesus goes back home to heaven, and God the father said, my son needs a bride. And so he sends his unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have a name. He has a description. He's holy and he's a spirit. We also hear that he's the counselor or the paraclete, but those are just descriptions, not names. So God the Father sends his unnamed servant back to his own people to find a bride for his son. And when does he come? On the day of Pentecost, which is what we just talked about a few minutes ago. So all see, this all ties together. It's all such a beautiful thing when you understand typology and what the Old Testament is laying the foundation for the new. So he sends his unnamed servant back to his own people in Jerusalem to find a bride. And the bride says, yes, the church is the bride of Christ. And he brings 10 camel loads of gifts. Remember, Paul said he gives us all spiritual gifts. He gives these gifts to whom he will the gift of tongues and prophecy and administrations and teaching. He gives the gifts to whomever he will. And this is the unnamed servant. The bride agrees to go to be wed to Isaac. Rebecca goes, we as a church have agreed to go back to be wed. And there's going to be this great wedding at the end of time. We've all been invited, by the way. Make sure that you're part of the bride. Don't miss out on this event. Stay close to Jesus and his church because he's going to take us and we're going to see, he's going to see us coming and he's coming to us. We're going to meet halfway and he's going to fall in love with us and we're going to fall in love with him and he's going to wed us and take us into his tent in heaven. You see, the whole story of Abraham and Isaac is a whole picture of God the Father with his son coming down, the sacrifice, going back to heaven, getting a bride and bringing us to be with him. And all of that is right there embedded in the story of Abraham in, uh, in Genesis chapter 22. And we could go on and on in my book. It's the longest chapter. Now. We're just scratching the surface. Wonderful. And I know you've got a whole yep. lot of trips planned here really close in the, yep. in the summertime. But Israel is, is shut down for a while. We've lost um, four trips. Uh, they're all sold out and they're postponed until next, later this year and early next year. But we did add new ones. Two of them are domestic, so you don't get jet lag. Yes. One of them is to St. Augustine, Florida. That's going to be in April. So even when this comes out in February, people still have time to get on that one. And there we go to find the beginnings of Christianity in the Catholic Church in America. I didn't realize this. My wife is, her relatives came over on the Mayflower. That's all documented in our family genealogy. We didn't realize that the Catholics arrived in the United States, set up a parish, had the first mass 50 years before the pilgrims ever arrived. So we're going to spend three days down there having mass on the beach where they came ashore. So join us for that one. Also, we're going to Lourdes and Fatima in April, Portugal, Spain, and France. That one's filling up very fast. We have a St. Paul cruise in October. We're going to go all through uh, Turkey and Greece and, see, and Rome. 
We're going to see over 20 biblical sites. Then we're going to go also to Ireland in August and go to the, that's a beautiful country, beautiful Catholic heritage, and go to Our Lady of Knox. And we're also going to Wisconsin, to the shrines of Wisconsin this year. And we're going to have mass and uh, dinner with Cardinal Burke. And going to see the the National Shrine of St. Joseph, the Shrine of Guadalupe. And um, that's just a wonderful trip. And a lot more we're going to do, too. So anyway, CatholicConvert.com. If you go to CatholicConvert.com, there's a big banner on the top about pilgrimages. Go there. You can see all the stuff we have coming up. You can register online, see interactive maps. And if you don't have money or time to go on a pilgrimage, every trip I've taken in the last 15 years, we've made a two-hour movie of it. So you can go back and you can go on a virtual pilgrimage to Guadalupe, Ireland, Poland, Israel. I've got them all up there. You can watch us, uh, join us on pilgrimages by video. Amazing. And you've, you've written several books. Can we find them at Catholic Convert? Yep, they're all there, and and they don't get to you as fast as if you order them at Amazon, but they're all signed, and the purchase helps our family um, because, you know, it, my granddaughter, Bella, handles my website, and so all the money that comes in helps our grand. I have 20 grandchildren, and so you purchase them online at CatholicConvert.com. It helps our family, and all the books are signed. Wonderful. And I got all those movies, too. We've done nine movies, all filmed on location, took 20 years. And you can follow us doing the life of Abraham. And we go all through Iraq and Turkey of today, Haran, and in the Palestinian areas, uh, Bethel. We go into the tomb of Abraham, which is in Hebron, a very hard area to get into. Um, So we got all that stuff there on my website. And I also have hundreds of documents people can download on the Bible, on apologetics. I have hundreds of conversion stories that people can read and enjoy. And every day I do, I have a blog. I put things up that are relevant. So I, you know what, Brennan? It's fun being a Catholic. It's absolutely a blast being a Catholic. Absolutely. Yep. Well, thank you for coming on my show. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light in the darkness.